0: Hello, welcome to the New Books and Sociology channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my sincere honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Tara J. Stewart. He is Assistant Professor in the School of Education at Iowa State University. We will be discussing his newly published book, Sex Work on Campus, published in New York by Routledge, 2022. Tara, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Likewise,
1: thank you so much for the invitation, I'm looking forward to chatting with you uh, and talking about the book.
0: To begin, uh, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? Sure thing. Well,
1: uh, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. So I'm currently at Iowa State University, which is also part of the country that we refer to as the Midwest here. But I'm from the other Midwest, as I like to say, because we are closer to the East Coast. So I was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. Um, And I am from a community that had a really strong um, environment and and care for young people. My mom instilled in me a love of education. Um, I came from a single parent home um, and we grew up in sort of low income conditions. Uh, But as I mentioned, education was always really important. And my mom was always an advocate for um, the maligned in society, the quote unquote underdog, et cetera. And so that has always been instilled in me is to think about who is missing and why, and how can we think more differently about people, populations or groups that um, it might be uh, relatively settled uh, in terms of public opinion, in terms of how we should treat them. And so um, I came from a big family. Uh, I have four sisters. Now as an adult, I have eight nieces and nephews. I now have grand nieces and nephews. Wow. Um, and so, so much of my upbringing and family and being in relationship and community with people from various minoritized groups um, has informed my value of equity and justice. And so that is something that I value in my research in my teaching and in my service, um, as well as my community work. So outside of the academy, things I've done in the past um, and presently. And so all of that kind of really informs who I am uh, as a scholar and as a person is that I'm really um, concerned with equity and justice and really liberation for all of us.
0: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
1: Yeah, so I was inspired to write this book, really, it was a mandate. Um, And so one of the things that uh, I did at the end of my research, so this book sort of reports from research I was doing as a a doctoral student at the University of Georgia. And at the end of that study, I was really wrestling with this idea of the difference between community-engaged research and community-accountable research, because often it's the case that researchers will come into a community or work with a group of people, they will talk to them, they will get their stories, they will get their data and their information, and then they thank them and they might give them an incentive. But ultimately, the researcher really gets to decide what happens with that information and what happens with that study. And that didn't feel good to me. So at the end of my study, I talked with each of the students who are in the book, Sex Work on Campus, and I said, hey, who do you want to hear your stories? How do you want them to hear them? And I explained to them the various options, such as articles, which are traditionally behind paywalls. I told them about public pieces like op-eds and writing in newspapers and magazines. And then I said, there's also a book. And the students overwhelmingly said, we want a book. We feel like that that is the most accessible, we think that that is a way that people can um, have access to our stories where we can reach more people. And then I went a step further to make it open access. So for me, you know, as a pre-tenure faculty member, particularly in education as a field, it's really the expectation that you're publishing articles and books are something that you focus on usually post tenure, right? But the students that were in this study told me loud and clear, we want a book. And so I worked very hard to honor their request. And that was purely the inspiration for this book was because the students that it's about wanted me to write it.
0: What are the primary themes in your book? What story and what stories does your book tell?
1: So the primary themes in my book are, how do we think about um, sex work as a type of labor? And how do we have a structural analysis to think about this particular experience and and the population of people that engage in that work um, as being a type of minoritized identity, or in other words, a group that's relegated to the margins of society. And so I wanted us to go a step further to talk about an experience that is often stigmatized, um, hyper-marginalized. But to invite the reader to consider that this is another area of equity and justice or another aspect of diversity that we might want to think about. Because certainly there are instances where people have challenging experiences in erotic labor or sex work. And then of course we know on the other end of the spectrum are issues around sort of sex trafficking. And it is important that we Um, avoid uncritically conflating those two. And so my book is really saying rather than talking about sex workers, how about we talk to them and see what their experiences are like and why that might matter. And so as a a scholar, my area of study is higher education. So I was primarily concerned with college students who might be engaging in this work because this connects to a number of other topics such as affordability, issues of capitalism, neoliberalism, um, and, uh, you know, the ability of people to be able to attend uh, higher education. And so those are some of the themes and how do we think more critically? How do we invite this to be a part of a conversation an equity and justice conversation? Um, and how do we invite uh, sex workers to be collaborators uh, in research about them as opposed to doing research on them, if that makes sense.
0: What is your book's contribution to the study of sex work? What is unique about your research and your approach?
1: Yeah, so... How I like to describe it is that if we start at a 10,000 foot view, and you were to say, what research or writing is out there about sex work or erotic labor? I mean, there are voluminous uh, amounts of things uh, that go back hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, it's often lauded as the world's oldest pro- oldest profession, which isn't quite true, but that's beside the point. But many people have written about sex work, erotic labor, prostitution is another term that I don't personally use, but is a word that is used to talk about this particular group of people who engage in this particular labor. But when you set when you sort of filter down, well, how much of this work is in education broadly, higher education specifically. Um, The number of research is reduced exponentially when you put that filter over top of it. So then of that research, most of the research is situated in non-U.S. context. So a lot of great work in the uh, U.K., Australia, um, uh, various different countries in Africa, not a lot about Um, college students or higher education within the United States. So that's kind of where I enter as a place of expertise, is I'm looking at U.S. higher education and sex work. Then going even further, my work specifically is looking at college student sex workers with racially minoritized and sexually minoritized identities, because the the broad body of work is primarily focused on cisgender white women in pornography. And so I was interested in what about sex workers who Um, are people of color? What about sex workers who have um, LGBT identities? And so that is sort of where I enter, is U.S. higher education, particularly looking at minoritized students who engage in this work. But of course, all of the work is connected. I cite my U.K. uh, colleagues, um, Uh, quite a bit. I cite uh, my colleagues who are in various different countries in Africa, including like Zimbabwe and Nigeria um, in in my publications. Um, The other thing that I think sets my research apart is this piece around being community engaged and community accountable. And so I don't use the word participant in my study because I think it's odd to think about people who the research is about as participating in the study of their lives and experiences, but rather I collaborate with them, not only in name, but also in praxis, uh, sharing power in the research en- inquiry, sharing control of what we do, what we talk about, where do we go, um, and also figuring out how I can compensate them in the most robust ways possible. So that way, we try to help manage the inherent exploitative nature of research, particularly for minoritized and vulnerable populations. I think the other thing that my work does that is um, interesting and I think can be somewhat unique is as a critical qualitative researcher, I also am really interested in um, creatively talking about research and telling stories so that it is more um, accessible and palatable, frankly, to people who aren't other researchers uh, or, or graduate students. And so for example, in this project, I did a lot of creative nonfiction. Uh, we did a lot of artifact elicitation. Um, uh, I am what's called a narrative inquirer. So, my approach to qualitative research is through a, an approach called narrative inquiry. And that's all concerned with story. What are the stories? What can we learn from the stories? How do the stories that the people within the inquiry live um, teach us or instruct us about uh, how we might move forward? And so, I think those are all animating aspects of my research that that helps distinguish it a little bit, but it's always in conversation with the broad body of work of other researchers that are doing uh, similar work on erotic labor or higher education or even critical and creative qualitative work.
0: In what ways are the lived experiences of Black sex workers on campus different from sex workers of other backgrounds?
1: That's a great question.
0: So according
1: to the collaborators in the study, the student collaborators, they really do not see their experiences and their concerns articulated within a lot of the mainstream sex work um, movements and discourse. And so it's kind of like a, um, a both and. So there are some unique experiences that they have within post-secondary environments, but there's also just sort of unique experiences that they have in the world. There's a a piece of literature that's connected to the book. It's not published in the book, but talks about um, the differences between minoritized sex workers or sex workers with minoritized identities along the lines of race and sexuality and how they have to price their work differently. So they don't get the same amount of money as cisgendered, white, Uh, Heterosexual sex workers, they have to price their work, um, their labor a lot less to get the same or any clientele. So for example, that is something that they see is impacting um, their work and their experiences. There's also this big push in the main sex worker discourse to decriminalize sex work. Uh, globally, right? And so that's a very important distinction. Many sex workers are not asking for legalization. Legalization is very different from decriminalization. Well, some sex workers with racial minoritized identities have said that that's Um, perhaps a a step in the right direction, but it's also an incomplete solution. And we see that with other policy issues. For example, there are many countries and many states that are legalizing marijuana, for example, and yet there are people with racially minoritized identities who are still profiled by the police. Some are still sitting behind bars with convictions uh, because of, you know, possession charges of marijuana. And so even though marijuana is becoming legalized, it's becoming, um, you know, regulated, and that's fine, and that increases um, accessibility and decreases maybe um, some issues around the carceral state, there are still some people in groups that still will struggle, right, because of the other identities that they have, and so some of what Um, Black sex workers are saying and other sex workers with racially minoritized identities is just that our conditions are different. And we know there's a popular framework by Kimberly Crenshaw called intersectionality. And what that theory just says is that we have to have an analysis of power along the lines of identity, meaning that people with various different identities will experience power differently, their conditions will be different. And so those are some of the things that the Black sex workers have articulated is that some of the issues that might impact um, sex work or make conditions more favorable still might be somewhat difficult for them because of the ways they experience power along the lines of their other identities, including race and sexuality.
0: What, if anything, is unique about the American context of campus sex work? Although this might be outside the context of your research, how do you think your findings might be different if you analyzed other countries or regions of the world?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think one of the things that's most interesting to me about the landscape of research and literature on sex work, um, when you have an international or transnational um, analysis, is that it's kind of assumed that, or there's an understanding or expectation that um, there are greater numbers of American College students engaging, US college students engaging in sex work in other places in the world, but we also have some of the most restrictive laws around sex work and erotic labor. Um, Ron Roberts is a uh, a faculty member professor, I think he may be retired or emeritus now uh, out of an institution in England, in London, England. And he wrote a book called Capitalism on Campus. And one of the things that he talked about in that book is that when they were doing this work early on, I wanna say maybe in the eighties or maybe even in the nineties, they came over to the US to a conference in San Diego and they were excited to present these findings that for them they thought were exciting and mind-blowing and novel that when they shared that information at this conference in san diego the response from all the u.s scholars will were basically like yeah we can buy that students are probably engaging in that work and it wasn't really surprising to them at all and so i think what's interesting about it if we were to put it into a different context is that um, there, are, In non-U.S. contexts, there are more relaxed laws and policies around it, but I think the researchers have a more difficult time doing the work. And so when you look at, for example, um, there, there was a national study done in the U.K. on sex work where they were able to get some really good uh, quantitative and survey data. Um, you know, there it's there's more of an openness. There is less of my read of this landscape is there's less of a um protection and rescue kind of lens. not that that doesn't exist, but it is a little bit there. Um, and there is, you know, there's just a more of an openness to to look at um these students' experiences. And so I think, um in the u s, we are dealing with a lot of um, moral objection and moral stigma to the work. Uh, we have the more restrictive laws. Of course, there are places where direct service sex work, uh, which is what most people think about when they hear that word, um, where it's legal. But there are all types of sex work, so it's not just escorting or prostitution, is which is language some people use. Um, but there's also people who work at adult clubs. There are people who do camming. There are people who uh, do phone sex. Though I'm guessing that's probably somewhat of a fading kind of area or genre. And so, you know, when looking at the various different contexts, Uh, I think in the US, a lot of what we're we're pushing up against is a country that's supposed to have separation of church and state, but really has all these laws on the books because there is a moral objection to sex work. And I don't know that it's that pronounced in other parts of the world. I mean, I'm sure other scholars would would feel differently. So when we're analyzing uh, our study or thinking about them in different contexts, politics are always a part of the conversation. They have to be. Moral and ethics are always a part of the conversation Um, and in all of that sort of is informing how we then come to think about why someone does this work, what are their experiences and what particular types of support that they need. And so it's interesting. It's kind of like there's a little bit of a swap in the U.S. We have more restrictive laws, but there's more kind of um, understanding that we have more students over there. There's more relaxed laws, more difficulty studying the work in some ways. And so it's interesting. I'm really looking forward to, uh, as my kind of career continues, how I can partner with folks and we can sort of start having more international and transnational conversations, particularly in in the higher ed space, about issues of, of sex work and erotic
0: labor. One of the individuals you discuss at length in the book is Maria. Why is Maria noteworthy? Can you elaborate on Maria's experiences?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say, I think all the students are noteworthy. There were seven stories in the book. Um, and so they were Stokely, Tiana, um, Guy, Maria, Kathleen, Malia, and Kimmy. And so those seven students were uh, at the center of the project. And so, um, so I would say in my mind, or at least as I was trying to sort of advance this book, um, you know, they those seven right have equal kind of um, importance, and I tried to make sure that there was sort of equal space. I think Maria, um, as a as a collaborator in the study, you know, had a really interesting story. She had one that was similar to Malia. So the students in the study each um, identified in the sex worker space in different ways. Some identified as dancers. So there were two of them that worked in adult clubs. Um, some people use the, the language of stripping um, or exotic dancing. And so Maria was one of those um, one of those students who did that work in particular. Some of the other uh, students in the study did different work. But I think her story was interesting because she talked a lot about In her story, it was called Boobs, Hips, and Ho Barbies. Um, How her upbringing and her socialization, um, you know, maybe served to frame her uh, potential or eventual engagement In sex work via uh, exotic dancing. And so she was always sexualized by other people. Um, She did not necessarily always see herself as a sexual person, but because of how she's sort of developing physically, um, you know, there were ways that she started to see herself that initially she didn't on her own. And I thought that that was really interesting because I think what it points to are the ways that our environments and, um, you know, sometimes even our family or the people around us. Um, might, you know, facilitate or hinder our growth and development along a number of lines. What also I think is unique about her story is that when she was sitting down and having the meal with her mother, um, her mother had kind of suspected that she was dancing at this club. And she finally um, revealed that to her mom. And her mom, you know, who suspected that that was happening, just said, you know, we love you. We just want you to be safe. And then started to share some of her own family history. So for example, Maria's father had engaged in some form of sex work. I didn't ask Maria what kind. I don't know that she even asked, but she thought that was so interesting and that even her grandmother um, had engaged in it. And so, you know, it was interesting that she was having then this experience that she was keeping secret for so long, only for it to be revealed that, a parent and a grandparent was doing similar work. And, and I think it was interesting to think about that. Um, and I think it speaks to really the sort of the timelessness of sex work and erotic labor. I mean, you know, sex workers have been here throughout history and across time and they're not going anywhere anytime soon. And so I think Maria's story really illustrated some interesting themes around Socialization, uh, family, kinship, history, um, and all of that. And so, uh, yeah, she was one of the seven collaborators. And so, um, you know, the study would not have been the same without her and those other students.
0: In light of what you shared, can you kindly comment on the different forms of sex work that college students engage in? What is involved in escorting, in exotic dancing, in camming? in phone sex, in exotic dancing, in pornographic acting and performing and other such activities? Yeah, so, um,
1: you know, as you mentioned, uh, it it sort of runs the gamut. I mean, I think there's not a precise definition of sex work. I mean, but you can think about it as different labor forms that of which there is a sexual component or a sexual nature. Um, to it um, either one time or on an ongoing basis, right? Because that was something that was clear in the study as well. There were some students who were engaging in sex work only on an episodic basis, um, and it wasn't something that they were doing perpetually or all the time. But, you know, they differ a little bit. So, for example, someone who might be escorting could be doing any number of things. Escorting is used as a term, as a catch-all term, but initially Uh, the most basic definition is that there is an exchange of time for money. And so that means that sometimes those people will just go out on dates. They'll go to dinner. They might go to a sporting event, they might go over to someone's house and just sort of hang out. And in some cases, sex is involved. In other cases, it isn't. And so um, when you hear the term escorting, it is a broad term, and it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, sex works is, is also classed. I talk about that a lot in the book. And so there are some people who d- would never use the term escorting because it invokes a particular type of quote unquote high class. And you see this historically with like the court scenes um, you know, engaging in sex work. That, uh, you know, they that some people don't feel like it just it applies to them, so that's sort of where you get escorting. Escorting can be a type of direct service. So if you hear direct service or full service sex work, the subtext is that if someone is having sex for money, they are engaging in the acts of sex, whether that is intercourse. Um, and there is an exchanging or some sort of transaction uh, between those individuals. But escorting, some people will argue that I can be an escort and not have sex, uh, but it's really more intimacy and spending time for money. Prostitution is an old term, um, and that typically invokes, again, sex for money. It's an archaic term. Some people think that it is an incendiary term. Some people think that it is a stigmatizing term. There are some people who push back against that and say that um sex workers should be able to reclaim prostitution similarly in ways that they've reclaimed words like um, slut, whore, et cetera. So um, the other thing I'm trying to sort of illustrate is just that there are not many universal views across the board, So I'm trying to articulate the complexity and nuance. So prostitution um, is similarly, you know, a transaction that's usually sort of sex for money. Um, you know, that can mean, You know, intercourse, it can mean oral transactions, it can mean those sorts of things. Um, When you get into some of the other forms, it usually involves some form of nudity, perhaps some form of service, but there may not be any actual sex involved. So when you think about something like camming, that is usually um, connected to people who are doing shows or performing in the virtual space. Usually there's a camera. They're broadcasting to subscribers of a website um, or subscribers of a particular performer. Um, They will have shows that run. There will be tip functions and they will perform and you can tip the performer to do certain acts on film. But there's that distance between them. So it's a virtual kind of um, of, of sex work uh, where there's, you know, usually nudity performance, etc. Um, you know, in terms of stripping or exotic dancing, those are sort of live performances. You would go to a club or a, a bar or an event space um, and uh, people would come out and do routines, um, usually in costumes where They would reveal themselves depending on the state in question or the location. Touching is or is not allowed or mutually allowed, depending on the location. Full nudity is either not allowed or it is allowed. And so it may be mostly nude, but maybe with the nipple covered, et cetera. So there's all types of um, complexities there. But but you would go, you would see someone dance. They would usually sort of tip them and, 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 you know, and throw money at the stage while they're performing. Sometimes you get a private dance at a table or a table dance, and, you know, you would pay money for that. And then there's also VIP sections, which sometimes people would go back and they would dance. So that's sort of what you would see sort of in the club space. Um, You know, in terms of phone sex, it's someone you would talk to uh, on the telephone or or maybe perhaps through an app. um, And, you know, you would ask questions or they would do role play, that sort of thing. And the person calling in Um, would be getting sort of a fantasy, right, fulfilled and being able to talk to this person. And, um, you know, and then there's also some overlap right into what we call sort of the kink community with all of these areas. And so when you get into like um, BDSM or people who are, uh, you know, dominatrix, uh, that sort of thing, kink, like you see people sort of paying for certain types of experiences, certain types of role play, um, you know, which can include, you know, some pain, which can include leather, which can include... Um, being bound up rope, which can include uh, pain. It just sort of varies. And so all of these are kind of under the broad constellation of sex work. We've also seen, uh, you know, a combination of forms. So with the increase of things like OnlyFans and Just For Fans, which are app-based content creation, of course, pornography, you can have professional and amateur pornography where you're shooting video or film of sexual acts to then be um, sold or posted on either a website or or a place where someone can purchase um, that media and so um, there is a number right there's a wide spectrum of ways that people can engage in the work. Some of it involves actual sort of sexual intercourse, some of it does not. Um, but, um, you know, it really just varies and, and there's different combinations and constellations. And so, even some of these descriptions that I've given, they're not neat and clean. One kind of blurs into the other. Uh, you might go to a club, a strip club, or an exotic dancing club, or an adult club where there might be direct service work happening, whether it's supposed to happen or not. So it just kind of depends. And so um, you know, that's the best kind of broad explanation I can give about these different forms. And people engage in a number of them, depending on their context, the level of, uh, of risk they're willing to engage in, the amount of money they want to make. And they weigh in a number of factors as they determine what type of labor or work makes the most sense for them.
0: What is meant by the term erotic labor? Can you explain?
1: Yeah, I think erotic labor is a term that, um, that I use. I actually prefer it over sex work. I talk a little bit in the book about the differences between work and labor. And so I cite folks like Kathy Weeks and the problem with work. We look at um the work of uh Hannah Arendt and you know the, the idea of work and capital and labor. And so I think erotic labor invokes a labor analysis. It also invokes um, you know, an analysis of capitalism. And so I think that you know it also is a term that better encapsulates some of the types of work that may not have or may not um, be involved with sex directly. So as I just indicated, there are some types of sex work that may not have any sex involved, but it is still a type of erotica or erotic labor. And so I like erotic labor because then it allows for those who engage in certain types of work where they don't have intercourse, sexual intercourse or sex for money to still be included in the conversation and the discourse around the challenges with erotic labor um, you know the stigma of all types of erotic labor, that sort of thing. So I think of erotic labor as a more broader term, um, as a more uh, as a as a as a catch-all term that encapsulates those who might engage in types of sex work where they don't actually have any sexual intercourse. Because I think oftentimes when people hear the term sex work, they only think about people who are engaging in escorting, direct service, or full service sex work, and that's important. And it's important that we center those folks because of the stigma that they experience. But there's also people where that's not the context that they are maneuvering. So erotic labor talks about uh, labor that one might engage in that it, that is a type of erotica or is, a, or is connected to the erotic, uh, a concept of which I talk at length about in the book.
0: Can you tell us about Tiana? Why is her story revelatory? Can you elaborate on some of her experiences?
1: Oh, yes. So Tiana um, was a student who, um, you know, I loved all the students in the study. I mean, I think think that they were just so brilliant and I learned a lot from them. Tiana was a student who, you know, had a really interesting experience. Um, She was very very involved on campus. She uh, was in a sorority, she had a job on campus. And she started to deal with a number of issues in her home life. Um, uh, You know, one of the things she was dealing with at one point was depression. She ended up losing her job on campus and was really on a hard time financially. And so um, in her memoir, Fight Night, she talks about her first time engaging in sex work in Las Vegas um, during the Floyd Floyd, uh, Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao boxing uh, match. And so this was highly publicized. It was very popular. It was all anybody was talking about. And so she went on a road trip with some folks in her sororities uh, who did not know that she was going there to meet someone, um, but she did. And so what I think um, her story reveals are a lot of complexities about you know, the fact that these students don't engage into this work lightly. They take it very seriously. Um, they have a clarity about their decision to do it. Um, and in her case in particular, you know, she had some really deep reflective and reflexive sort of moments and questions. She was engaging with, ourselves, uh, with herself about like, you know, am I going to wake up hating myself? Am I going to wake up regretting my decision as she, you know, made the walk down that hotel corridor um, to spend an evening with, you um, uh, Mike who was the person in, who we named in her story and so at the end of that she didn't regret her choice. She didn't wake up feel bad. she uh, waking up feeling bad she knew that the work was illegal. she was concerned I think she joked in her story about you know wondering if there were any police you know hiding in bushes ready to jump out and arrest her after uh, you know the next morning but you know she actually talked about how it made her feel a lot better. She felt a lot freer. She had some money, and she talked about it as being bill money, food money, Starbucks money—like money that she needed for just basic life things to survive. And so, you know, for her, she really thought about her work um, as timeless. You know, she talked in her story about how how she loved the mountains because they were timeless, and she also loved sex work because it was timeless—that it made her part of a class and a community. Of women throughout history and across time, um, to do what they needed to do to survive, to do what they needed to do to take care of themselves, and she talked about it and she framed it as the immortal spirit of wild women, and that is what she felt like that she tapped into. The immortal spirit of wild women is the is the um, is the group of which she was inducted to and elevated into when she decided to make this decision for herself um, to to survive and to take care of herself in that way. And so I think that there's a lot of richness in Tiana's story. There was a lot of clarity of character um, and how she talked about her experience. And, you know, I think it was was important and it was poignant and it was relevatory in all of those ways.
0: What motivates college students to enter sex work?
1: (laughs) In short, money. (laughs) Money is the motivator. Uh, and voluminous um, articles, voluminous researchers um, have found that. They have found that money is the motivator, the amount of money that they can make with sex work, the amount of time that they can make that money with sex work matters and makes a difference. Um, And so, you know, almost every study will tell you that the motivation is money. I think what my study illustrated is that Um, that it it gets a little bit more complex when you factor in other different identity experiences. For example, for a long time, the narrative that Um, folks, uh, college students that were engaging in sex work were doing it to pay for college. And so that was a a broad narrative and kind of still is out there in some ways that, oh, yeah, they do it. They're paying off their student loans. They're buying houses. They're not they're leaving college with no debt. And that was the primary kind of discourse and frame for a long time. What I found in my study is that wasn't really the case um, for all sex workers, some sex workers certainly are doing that. I'm going to pay my student loans. I had one student in my study that that was sort of her motivation, but for sex workers with racially minoritized identities, sexually minoritized identities, they were in a much higher degree engaging in sex work to, to meet their basic needs to meet survival, right? So there were two students who were only engaging in sex work when they Um, fell on hard times. That's it. It was totally episodic. If they had money from their other jobs, if they had resources to meet their needs, they wouldn't do it. It was only when they were in crunch times or situations they would do it. Then there were other folks that were doing it regularly. It was their chosen form of labor. Um, There was a collaborator by the name of Kimmy who said, you know, the reason why I was afraid to tell people or I was I'm hesitant to tell people that I was doing sex work is because I didn't want them trying to save me from the work. I would have much rather being saved from working at Target. So, you know, there was was a wide sort of um, a, a variety, but the primary motivation is money. But the one thing I want people to think about is that not all people were buying cars and houses and paying off student loans with erotic labor. Some people were buying dinner, paying for graduate school applications, and you know, making money to buy a train ticket to get home to see a grandmother whose health was failing, right? So that, when you look about it in that way, right, it tells a different story and paints a different picture of money as motivation. But the primary motivation in the most simplest term is money.
0: How can psychotherapists, social workers, and other clinical vulnerable sector staff benefit from your study in helping their clients? I
1: think the biggest thing that folks who are engaging or have the potential to engage with sex workers can benefit um, from this study is engaging these folks in ways that put them at the center. I think it's important that we refrain from engaging in a paternalistic ethic with people that we think need to be protected, rescued, or saved. Because while on the surface, those are admirable traits, on the surface, that is an admirable ethic to have, it can be quite dangerous because it disempowers those who have made choices and decisions about the ways in which they think they need to survive. And so, you know, I think if, if you know, psychologists, counselors, therapists, psychotherapists, if they want to actually engage and help these folks to listen to them, to as much as possible suspend judgment, to ask them questions about their experiences, hear their answers, and be able to receive them within the context in which they give them. But I think if you start a conversation with someone who is engaging in sex work and erotic labor and you engage it from that um, oppression paradigm, I think that it becomes a non-starter. You've already lost them. They may not come back, they may not accept any help if they're seeking help to begin with. And so, you know, in the book, I talk about the difference between the empowerment paradigm, which I've already discussed on this podcast. The oppression paradigm is the paradigm that only sees sex worker erotic labor as bad, as negative, as bleak, as only bore out of life's worst and most, you know, um, difficult circumstances. But, you know, this polymorphous paradigm understands the complexity that it could be empowering, but it could not be. It could be harmful, but it could not be. It might sometimes be empowering and sometimes be harmful. And so I think if we can approach conversations with people that are engaged in sex work or erotic labor with that framing, I think we get a lot more distance around what it is that they need and how we can both help them. Oftentimes when I go and talk about this book and this research, you know, the question I get is how did you establish trust? How did you get these folks to come and talk to you and to reveal these things to you. And I think, you know, that is something that in theory, right, we want psychologists and psychotherapists and counselors. We want them to be able to earn the trust of the people that they seek to help. And the reason why I was able to establish that trust is because I disarmed the stigma. I disarmed the shame. I didn't enter my conversation with them from a place of judgment needing to protect them, to save them, or to rescue them. I entered that conversation from a curious place. I entered those conversations wanting to learn. I entered those conversations uh, letting them lead and then allowing me to sort of figure out where I could support, where I could offer resources or how I might direct them to the next step. So I'm hoping that that might be helpful and instructive as uh, folks might engage with these groups and that they can think about these in some meaningful and intentional ways.
0: Can you tell us about Malia? Why is her story revelatory? What is distinct about her lived experiences? Sure thing. Um, Malia uh,
1: was another student in the study who was dancing um, at an adult club. She was doing exotic dancing um, work. And, you know, she was the first student that I remember clearly speaking to. And it was fascinating because she talked a lot about sort of the family dynamic um, and really image And image and how image is connected to stigma and shame. Um, In fact, her story in the book is called Malia in the Mirror because she starts her story looking at herself in the mirror, wondering how she, from her family that is well-known, from a family that is consumed with image, found herself engaging um, in uh, exotic dancing. And then her story ends with her seeing herself in the mirrors of these adult clubs right seeing you know her her naked body and the money and all of that and her having this sort of self-actualizing experience and so i think she offered us a really important class context a very important social context in relation to family um and um you know it was really just sort of a, a a a very close almost eerily close um, uh, experience similar to that of Diamond which is a fictional character that I talk about in the book so Diamond um, Diana Diamond Armstrong was a character in the film Players Club and then that film Um, Diamond wanted to go to an HBCU, which is an historically black college or university in the United States. And her father didn't want her to go to an HBCU and sort of the subtext of the film is that HBCUs are allegedly not good schools and that he refused to pay for it. And so she decided that she was gonna go and she was gonna pay for it herself. And the way that she paid for it was to work at the players club, which was a adult club, a strip club. And through her various trials and tribulations, she learns lots of lessons about herself and about her world um, and about what she's willing to deal with. And so one of the things that Malia says in her story is like, wow. Wow this isn't that bad at all. She she was referring to her work in the club that first night. She was like, this isn't like a player's club at all. And so it was a connection to sort of this popular culture moment of this film. And she went in thinking, my experience is going to be like that of diamond from the player's club. And she actually had a much better experience and didn't think it was bad and continued to um, you know, dance in that club. And so I think for all of those reasons, it was just a very rich uh, story and experience of family, of image, of stigma, of survival, um, of authenticity um, and of transparency. And you know, I will always uh, cherish the time that I had to talk with her, particularly as the very first student that I spoke with in this study.
0: How do classmates of sex workers on college campuses perceive their activities
1: That's a good question. Um, The short version is that it varies. There's some really great articles, research articles that have been published. Last name is Sager et al. There's a few different pieces. I wanna say maybe Ron Roberts has done some work looking at that because as I mentioned earlier, um, some countries have a lot of difficulty engaging in the research itself. Um, and so they're limited in who they can talk to and what they can ask. So some of them, their way around that was to, rather than asking directly about sex work, they would ask students, do you know of anyone in sex work? What is your perception of sex work um, You know, on campus and, and that sort of thing. And so it varies. There are some people who, you know, there's a good number of students who understand why some of their fellow classmates engage in sex work. Um, there are some that even though they understand why they would do it, they wouldn't necessarily do it themselves and they don't necessarily approve. Um, in my study, you know, it was mixed. There were some students who found some support, but overall they experienced stigma and shame from all classes of people in post-secondary contexts, including faculty, staff, administrators, and yes, students. And so for I'll give you an example. One of the things that really frustrated some of the students in the study is that when they would hear Their classmates saying things like, Oh my God, classes are so hard. I'm gonna, you know, I'm not doing well in chemistry. I'm just gonna drop out and become a stripper. Or, Oh, you know, I'm so tired of, you know, statistics. Like, I just need to get me a sugar daddy. So, students who are doing this work are hearing people talk about it in a joking way. um, And it made them feel like, that they were saying they were failures, or that sex work is easy work. And so that was a problem for them. They were were like, no, we're not failures. The work that we do is not easy, right? It's not something that you drop out of school and do, um, because, you know, things get too hard, you know, that we're doing it to survive. But, you know, we're doing it as a way to kind of, you know, move closer to our meeting our needs and, and meeting our dreams, perhaps one day. And so, I would say just as much variability as you might see in the general population about sex work, it's similarly the case um, in, you know, with classmates or with peers. And um, in, in the book, um, no, it's not in the book. It was in an article, but from this study, Malia talked about how she was in a class. I don't know if it was an ethnic studies or a women's studies class, but anyway, a classmate was saying something really negative about sex workers and her professor, you know, counteracted that negativity to say, well, let's be careful what we say, you know, we don't want to essentialize or oversimplify. There are some people who engage in that work um, willingly, who, you know, are doing well and it serves them well. And as a result of Malia seeing her professor do that, then said, in front of the class and to the person who made this classmate who made this negative comment, you know, I'm a dancer downtown, so now what, right? And then outed herself in her class because of, um, you know, seeing her professor kind of counteract that, but her professor counteracting the classmate's kind of view. So I would say it varies. I don't think that there's one singular view. I think it it varies, but there is um, a, a quite a bit sometimes of negativity Um, that these students experience from some of the stigma and sort of the uh, broad brushstroke oversimplification of what it is that they do.
0: What are the legal consequences and repercussions of sex work on campus? What have been the ramifications for the legal system and for students and sex workers themselves?
1: Yeah, so the, the biggest piece around law and legal structures um is related to what i have so far termed used as sort of direct service or full service sex work right so when i say sex work or erotic labor again that includes things like exotic dancing camming or even being in pornographic films And so all those things are perfectly legal in most states and jurisdictions. Of course, there are exceptions to everything. There are certain places where those things might be legal, but by and large in the United States, those types of erotic labor um, are in fact legal. What's illegal is what we know as um, quote unquote prostitution, some forms of escorting, as I mentioned, because if you escort and engage in sex for money, right, it falls under that sort of category and uh, it really just depends. Some states are more likely to enforce than others, um, and but typically it's often the case that law enforcement are not actually looking, or they don't say on the surface that they're looking for sex workers or erotic laborers. They sort of um, wrap sex work and erotic laborers up in sweeps and stings for sex trafficking. And so, You know, there are different ways that they have sort of approached that, but then there are also ways that people that are um, supportive of sex workers and erotic laborers have fought back or are fighting back. And so there was a federal court case, I want to say in the Ninth Circuit, but I'm not entirely sure, where there was a constitutional challenge to the illegality of sex work, right? And um, you know the judge asked the um, asked the state attorney why is it illegal to sell something that it is legal to give away for free?" And I thought that was such a good question. I'll ask it again. He said, why is it illegal to sell something that it is legal to give away for free. And so what he was getting at is on what basis do we have laws on the books against sex work? Because in a country, in the United States, where we're supposed to have separation of church and state, it really is illogical to say, well, we need to have a law against this because it it violates my moral beliefs, right? Um, and so the response by the state attorney was just that, um, you know, because the legislature says so, or the legislature says that it is illegal. And so that is the the primary issue, sort of the legal consequences, is that if you get, you know, you might get booked or charged for prostitution if you're engaging in direct services or full service sex work. Um, you know, depending on the type of work you do or where you do it, you know, you there might be. Uh, lewd and obscene, you know, conduct laws, incendiary laws such as that, that, you know, you might deal with, but I would say within the context of campus itself or in higher education, there's really not been a ton. There was one student who I talk about in the book who had did um, a somewhat of a camming show in the campus library, and that was found out and the student was expelled from the institution. So that wasn't a legal issue, right? That was a more of a sort of maybe a, a code of conduct or policy violation of that institution. There was one court case, I want to say it was in the state of Oregon, where it was found out that a student was engaging in erotic labor and was dismissed or mistreated in her program. And she brought a case against the um, the institution um, and won that case. And the name of the of the person is escaping me. But uh, so th- suffice it just to say is that it is complex, but the legal consequences are really only about, uh, mostly about full service or direct service sex work. Other types of sex work, we don't really see um, issues sort of coming up into sort of the, the legal space. Um, but we do see it when we're thinking about issues of SESTA and FOSTA. And again, I don't see that as impacting the campus context as much because it's not like students were advertising their services or trying to get clientele through university sort of websites and systems, but it was the activism around SESTA and FOSTA, which were two pieces of federal legislation here in the United States that were on the surface about trying to deter sex trafficking. And so um, there was a lot of activism around that. And that was initially what got it on my radar, but That is, you know, some of the, you know, the legal issues. Um, And I think the bigger issue for most students, particularly if they're not in full service or direct service types of sex work are just issues of stigma and shame. Um, they don't feel like that they could be honest and open about their sex work for the ways they might be mistreated or judged, or perhaps even having that follow them over the course of their life, um, because it could be the case that one day they no longer want to do it, and maybe they don't want that to be part of their story, to, story or narrative. And so those are some of the ways that, you know, we're thinking about it, but currently, um, you know, it is illegal in most places. There are, you know, a few places where it is legal, um, you know, such as in the state of Nevada, there's uh, are places where uh, they have to have brothels, as it were, uh, where it is legal, et cetera. But, yep, um, those are the, the, the big pieces that come to mind about that.
0: Can you tell us about Stokely? Why is Stokely's story unique and revelatory?
1: Sure. So Stokely... Um, had an interesting story as a um, queer student in the study, as a student who was deeply spiritual, um, not religious, but spiritual, particularly in um, indigenous, African, sort of ancestral kind of deities and being. And she, uh, the title of her story in the book is Dear Nana, It's Me Stokely. And she talked about uh, Nana Buruku, who is um, who is a sort of deity in some West African uh, religions and is seen as sort of the uh, protector of femme energies of women and um, you know, kind of like, you know, almost like a patron saint kind of 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 sex work. And so she talked about her experience engaging in that work and the connection that she felt to the ancestors, the connection that she felt to Nana Baruku um, and how she marshaled that relationship to help her make meaning and help her make decisions about the work itself. And so I I talk about um, Stokely's story, I wanna say in the second chapter of the book to kind of really help open up the historical um, context of which we see sex work uh, existing, right? Because sex workers have been here throughout history and across time. And so, um, you know, Stokely really uh, illuminated some interesting things for us to consider in that the multidimensionality of those who engage in sex work and erotic labor, there is likely an assumption that these people are a spiritual that they have no belief system uh, because people assume that sex work is immoral. They assume the sex workers themselves are immoral, that they are not spiritual, that they don't have things that they believe in um, or ways in which they practice care for themselves and others. And Stokely kind of just disrupts all of those stereotypes and all of those assumptions. And, you know, being spiritual and being, um, you know and having a, a relationship or discipline practice with the ancestors uh, with um you know deities from non-western and white um you know religions um you know I think was an important ad and an important framework for thinking about these experiences and I mean it was such a dynamic um story I think also it was interesting because stokely was um studying i want to say criminology or sociology and thinking about sitting in these classes and talking about issues of secular and erotic labor from these criminal carceral frames um, as she was engaging and connected to that work herself and so it was just a beautiful beautiful uh, representation and contributions to study and really revealed um, the complexity of identity, the richness of these students and their experiences and how they came to the work.
0: What roles do parents and family members of college sex workers play in their respective lives? Can you describe some examples?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they play various different roles. Um, The biggest thing I would want to sort of offer is that to not make assumptions about any sex worker and what their family relationship and dynamics are based solely off the fact that they engage in sex work or erotic labor. Um, As we heard in Maria's story, Maria's mother sensed that she was engaging in sex work as an exotic dancer. And once she found out, still loved her, still respected her, wanted her to be safe, you know, Maria was worried. Are, are you going to kick me out of the house? Are you going to take my car? And it broke her mother's heart because she's like, "You must think so little of me to think that I would do that to my daughter." And so I think, you know, they play an important role, um, a, a important place of sort of safety and refuge. If right, they are supportive um, of these students and the work that they decide. There were other people in the study that they their parents were unaware of their work. So for example, when um, Malia was reading Maria's story, because we shared the stories of all the students with each other, she said she, you know, um, you know, she got really emotional because she said she envied being able to sit across from her mother and tell her that she had been dancing to, to to have that reaction, and so you know the the family dynamic is a really critical place. In other places, right? You see, like for in the uh, case of Kathleen, the reason why she was engaging in the work was because she wanted to ease the burden of her parents having to pay for her student loans. And I don't remember the exact amount, but I think at the time of study, she was saying there were somewhere around thirty thousand or forty thousand dollars U.S. dollars that. She didn't want her family to be on the hook for that. So that was actually her main motivator for engaging in the work. When I think about Gee, he was the only cisgender man in the study, uh, the only man in the study. And, you know, he had talked to um, his mother about um, his engaging in sex work and or um or maybe he didn't talk to her but he talked about how his mother had said that if it had ever come to it if she was ever in a crunch if it meant that her kids would eat or not that she too would do it and so even just hearing that positive message um that anecdotal message meant a lot to gee to hear that and so i think parents play a a huge role. Um, There's also some level perhaps of socialization. So if we go back to Maria's story and how she was socialized uh, by others and how she was sexualized by others as they saw her growing and developing body, you know, parents can be a place to counteract some of that messaging um, so that way, you know, children, as their children, as they grow up as teens and as they you know, develop as young adults in college that they're they're not receiving messages about who they ought to be, if that's not what who they want to be. And so it really varies. I mean, I think all of the students in the study talked about their family in different ways, about the ways that they learned from them, about the ways that they may not have understood their work or they did understand their work or how their work was going to be able to help them. Um, the best advice I can give, um, you know, I am not a parent, but I have a very large family is is to remain open and to allow people to, you know, tell you their stories and their Um, explanations and to allow them to share with you the decisions that they're making and why they're making them and to work together to feel, to determine what's the best way for them to move forward, for them to protect themselves, to keep themselves safe, right? Because the kind of theme in my book is we do not want to paternalize these students, that we have to give them space, we have to give them agency, we give them support based on what they tell us they need, based on what they ask for. um, And that is the most sort of powerful position I think any family member could be in uh, for someone who might be engaging in sex work or erotic labor.
0: What do you mean by the term institutional stopgapping? How does it relate to sex work? Yeah, institutional
1: stop gapping as a concept comes from an article that reports from this same study that operates as a micro disruption to um, sex worker stigma. So I've already talked about this story. I just uh, shared a little bit about when Malia was in class and her classmate said something negative her professor disrupted that negative messaging to reframe and to re-steer the conversation. So I call that institutional stopgapping because it operates as a micro disruption to help affirm college students who might be engaged in sex work um, so that they don't become depressed, so that they don't, they're not harmed based on conversation or policies or practice against their work that would, you know, shroud them in stigma and shame. But I use stopgapping as language to articulate that it is a brief disruption. And really institutional stopgapping was kind of a mirror of the concept of institutional betrayal. So in an article I wrote about the experiences of college students engaged in sex work and talked about how sometimes the way they're talked about the way institutions and institutional leaders specifically respond or don't respond to their needs and their experiences, that it operates as a form of institutional betrayal. So then I tried to think, what would counter institutional betrayal or what would be the opposite of it? And I don't know what an institutional loyalty would look like, right? That would be the opposite of betrayal, would be institutional loyalty. I don't know if that's possible as a critical scholar invested in equity and justice and liberation of people. I don't know if institutions can truly be loyal to people. But I said institutional stopgapping, I think, articulates the the temporary but still disruptional and transformational nature of being able to buffer some of the sex work stigma that college student sex workers might uh, experience while they're on campus and in their classes and in their residence halls. And so um, as a way uh, to get to maybe more transformational and structural support of sex workers which is not really realized in my mind in any university or institutional context i think where many of us are on the way to or trying to get there i think institutional stop gapping is a practice that practitioners can think about what is it that i can do Um, And, you know, to disrupt sex worker stigma, whether it's something that someone says, whether it's a policy, what can I do that sort of supports them Um, and and really what institutional stopgapping was about was um was denormalizing harmful contexts um and and stopping misinformation being spread about sex workers and so those both come from the framework of
0: institutional
1: betrayal that kind of framed that article where I developed that that language or that
0: term. Can you tell us about Kemi? Why is Kemi's lived experience distinct? Can you tell us Kemi's story?
1: Yeah. So Kimmy um, was a student who began engaging in sex work because she quite literally could not afford to pay for graduate school application fees. So we have this student who's in undergrad, wants to go to graduate school, can't pay the fees, but didn't want that to deter um, her ability to apply. And so Kimmy like Guy, as I mentioned, were both two students who only engaged in sex work when they fell on hard times. And so this was an example of that. And so what I liked about Kimmy being in the study is she um, had a very precise analytical lens to think about issues of power related to identity. So she identified as fat, as Black, as Nigerian-American. She talked about Um, issues of, of, you know, both sex work and sexual violence um, in her past. And her story was called A Small Jump. And the reason why we called her story A Small Jump is because she essentially was talking about how she has always used her body in different ways to get what she needed. That, even though someone may not call themselves a sex worker, someone may not understand or see themselves as engaging in erotic labor, that they are often engaging in transactional sex. You have sex because you want something in return. You have sex because you want some guy to stay the night. You have sex because you want to keep your boyfriend or whatever. Those are some examples, right? And so for her, she said, I was already doing that. So going from sex to keep someone around or to spend the night to sex for money to meet my needs, that wasn't a big jump, it was a small jump. And so that's why we called her story a small jump, as she sought ways to make the money that she needed for the first time that she engaged in sex work. Obviously, she wasn't doing it every time for grad school application fees, but for the first time, that was why. And so Kimmy, I thought, was a really interesting story and a really interesting sort of study in this notion of transactional sex, and how people like to or, or try to distance themselves from sex work as a, as a concept and, um, and as a construct, bec- just because they don't think that, that money or material things are changing hands. And for that reason, uh, Kimmy had a profound contribution to the project.
0: What are the obstacles that college students engaged in sex work encounter if and when trying to exit? what internal and external barriers do they confront? So
1: that's an interesting question. I'll have to say that in the context of my study, um, exiting wasn't as big of a focus. Some people were still engaged in the work. Many of them had concluded their their time in the work. But I would say the biggest barrier is needing to survive, It is capitalism, is inflation, is the cost of college, is the cost of rent, is the cost of everything. And so part of the reason why I use labor as a frame is because if we think about sex work as labor under capitalism, then it gives us a different way in which to think about um, why students are making the decisions that they make. And so if we want to trouble work, then let's trouble work. If we want to trouble labor, let's trouble labor. But I don't think that we get to stigmatize how people are choosing to survive capitalism, are choosing to survive the increasingly difficult and impossible conditions to just have a decent life. And so um, in terms of exiting, I think you know, cost, if they can afford the things that they need, if they can work jobs to meet their needs, um, then they may do those. But at the same time, I wanna be clear, there were only two students who engaged in in the work on an episodic basis. The other students, um, they engaged in it because again, they liked the amount of money that they can make and the time that they had to spend to sort of make that money. And so this connects to some of the framing of sex work as as in fact, anti-work, right? Anti-capitalism, anti, right? And so if I can do labor, do less labor, get more money to be able to survive capitalism, you know is that something that I want to do for myself? And so I think that cost and survival um, are likely barriers um, to exiting. Um, And I do think that when you start to think about other issues with exiting, right, you know, we have to be mindful of how do we think about Sex worker erotic labor is different and apart from sort of a sex trafficking, right? Because then there, then the conditions in my mind, the conditions and stakes are much different. And so while those two things might exist on a spectrum, on a continuum, we can't uncritically conflate them. And so I think that's probably the biggest difficulty is just being able to survive. Um, you know, and um, being able to do or find work that doesn't um absolutely exhaust, that isn't absolutely sort of degrading in a different way. Um, than some might perceive sex work to be. I just certainly don't think the students in the study felt that way um, or felt that way all the time. But those are the, the big things. I do, I will say that some of the students were concerned that if and when they decided to step away, how might it come back to haunt them? If someone has an ax to grind or they've kept a grudge and they know about their work, will it come back to haunt them? So those are some things that have, you know, have come up and how they protect themselves. But I have to just admit that, that exit as a, as a point of study wasn't really centered, um, but it is something that I am interested in.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you kindly tell us where your time and attention have gone since completing this book?
1: Of course, so I have um been I'm currently doing a, a new study on sex work and erotic labor, looking at Black gay and or queer men and their use in app based sex work or content generation because that's kind of the next way that we're seeing only fans just for fans that sort of thing. I talk about my research as being about people, populations, and ideas that are in the margins of the margins, and so I'm currently doing a study on fat phobia and sizeism, and I've been doing some action research about that. Um, and I also do work on anti-Blackness, um, particularly in non-Black communities of color. So I'm really thinking about this hyper marginalized and hyper stigmatized area. What are issues and topics that aren't rendered justice issues and how do we make them legible in that way? So I've been spending some time on those projects um, and advancing that work, but I'm not quite done with sex work on campus. I have a few other things up my sleeve to advance this work and to advance this project.
0: As we end today, I wanted to just let you know how much I loved learning from you, listening to you, and how grateful I am for your wisdom, your eloquence, your erudition, and for all the knowledge you shared with us during the course of this dialogue.
1: Thank you so much, Ari. I really appreciate the invitation, and I have just loved spending time with you and hope folks enjoy the conversation and will check out the book if they haven't. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. And thank you for all the silent sacrifice and silent suffering involved in researching, writing, revising, and preparing such a phenomenal book as this.
1: Thank you. That means a lot.
0: As we end our dialogue today, I am your host on the New Books in Sociology channel on the New Books Network podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Tara J. Stewart. Dr. Stewart is assistant professor in the School of Education at Iowa State University. We have been discussing Dr. Stewart's newly published book, Sex Work on Campus, published by Routledge 2022. This book was awarded the Outstanding Book Award by the Association for the Study of Higher Education. Thank you wholeheartedly.